So we're getting into a stretch of Leviticus, and that, which is basically all the way to the end of the book, with the exception of chapter 16, um, where we get into the, the rules, you know, the rules uh, that people don't know what to do with. That's the, kind, the section of Leviticus that we're getting into. And so my intention today is to give you kind of like a big picture, 30,000-foot overview of the rules and so that you can at least have some framework moving forward from here, okay? And there's actually, uh, we were joking about it because for those of you who are aware of what the kids are doing, they're currently going through a book called The Laugh and Learn Bible. It's by Phil Vischer, the same guy who uh, did VeggieTales. And he actually, had, his section on the law is actually really good. I stole it from my sermon. <laughs> you think I'm joking. <laughs> Um, but he did have some really good points, so you can feel free to read that. If you do own that kid's Bible, um, you can talk about that with your kids, and you can say we discussed the same thing. And so one of the things that I actually did take from Phil Vischer is he talks about holiness, and he asks this question to the kids about what does it mean to be holy, and how a lot of people think holy. We have a false conception of what holiness means. If you ask the world what does it mean to be holy, most people will think it means better than you know, or perfect. That holiness refers to perfection. It refers to sinlessness or it refers to being better than that, than one person or another. But in the Bible, holiness actually, and that might be a part of things at times, but holiness actually really refers to this idea of being different from or being set apart for God, for a particular purpose. And so when God says that, you know, Israel is holy, he doesn't mean they're perfect or that they have less sin than another nation, he means that Israel is chosen and set apart for his purposes, his purposes as his kingdom of priests. And so when we say someone or something is holy, like, for example, in Leviticus, when it says things like, well, this, this bread... Can, can, Larry, can you fix my audio on channel one, please? I feel like I'm a little thumbing out. Um... So if, if you think about the idea of like, well, this grain is a holy offering. It doesn't mean that grain is, has less sin than other grain. It means the, that, that that grain is set aside for a very particular purpose so that it has a, a reason that it would be involved in ritual worship. And so God is, is, God is holy as well. And so we have these holy things in the book of Leviticus, these holy people, thank you, and we have a holy God. And so what does it mean when we say that God is holy? Well, it means that God is set apart from everything. That's why he's called holy, holy, holy throughout the scriptures, that he is infinitely holy. He is far holier than any person. And so he, whereas we might be holy and that we're set aside for God's purposes, God is holy because he is set aside from everything. He's completely unique. He's completely different from anyone or ever, anything. There's simply stated no one else like God. And so God brings the Israelites out of Egypt. You know, if you're new to the Bible, God created the world, um, created the first humans, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve rebel against God. God removes them from his presence in this garden called Eden, this utopia paradise. Eventually, they have kids, and their kids have kids, and their kids have kids, and a group of that population from the world is called the Israelites, they wind up in slavery in Egypt, and God rescues them out of Egypt, and he says, I'm going to make you into a new nation. I'm going to make you into my nation, where I'm going to be your king, and you're going to be my people. And what happens in the book of Exodus is that God gives them the law. We see that in Exodus and Leviticus. 
And the idea is he says, you are holy because you're set apart for my purposes. And so you need to act as if you're set apart for my purposes because you are unique and pulled away, cut apart from every other nation on the planet, that you alone are my portion. And so the, uh, the biblical framework is that all the other nations are subjected to false gods, right? Baal and Ashtaroth and all of these false gods. But God says, my portion are the, is the nation of Israel. They are wholly set apart for me. And so since he's establishing this new nation, we have to realize that a nation needs laws. A nation needs laws. God says, I'm going to be your king. You're going to be my people. Well, they can't just mill around and do whatever they want to do. If they're going to be a nation, if they're going to be a real nation, then they need to be a real nation with a real king, with real laws that govern everything they do. And that's what we see in the book of Exodus and Leviticus especially. We see laws about what are rules about borrowing money from other people. What are rules about land? What are rules about if I have a parcel of land and I want to sell it to someone, and is that forever? Well, no, because it's God's land technically, and so it returns to his ownership after a set number. All of these things relate to laws about how this nation would operate. Laws about worship, laws about sacrifice, laws about marriage, laws about sexuality. All of these kinds of things are embedded within the law because it's how the society will function. And so what's the point of all these laws? Well, it's to govern them, broadly speaking, how they're going to interact with God. But when you read some of these laws today, they would be quite confusing to you. For example, David and I were talking about when we were driving in this morning, we were talking about, like, do you remember when jeans just used to be jeans? Like, they weren't 5% elastane. They just were jeans. And if you ate too much, you felt like your belt was going to rip through your gut. Now it's like you can buy five sizes smaller because they stretch like this. You know, you're like, hey, I am a 30 waist. No, you're not. <laughs> See, that in the law, you couldn't mix different fabrics together. And so you couldn't wear those stretchy pants. Couldn't wear those jeggings, guys. That poly cotton blend is a violation of Leviticus 19.19. <laughs> or, for example, if you like good old American football, I say American football in case there's anybody here who's not from America, you know, and you can't, you want to play football with a real pig skin like they used to, you can't, can't touch it. It's a violation, Leviticus 11, 7 to 8. Even things like tattoos, whether or not you could shave your beard. Too bad for us who can't grow a beard. I would be constantly unclean. There were rules about how you could cut your hair when you couldn't cut your hair, what kind of beard you could have or couldn't have. And so we look at these rules, and we don't know what to do with them in modern culture. And so it's probably quite common that if you go out into the world and you talk with people who are not followers of Christ, or if maybe they are followers of Christ but they are of a more progressive bent, they would point to Old Testament laws, cherry pick one out, and use it as a joke that this is why Christianity is a farce. Do you stone your child every time they disobey? And they say things like that, right? And you say, I want to, <laughs> right? And so we have these rules, and, and they don't make a lot of sense to us. But this is the thing. When you have a friend or a family member or a coworker who points to those rules and say, this is why it's a joke, you can't even, you know, wear polyester, you need to realize that th these rules are part of a greater narrative, 
a greater story. And if you don't understand the larger story, you're not going to understand how these small little minute pieces of scripture fit in because they actually um, are completely pointing to Christ. And so up until this time, we've been unpacking laws about worship, you know, how a set-apart people are going to worship a set-apart holy God. And, but the rest of Leviticus goes into different types of, of law. And so in, in Leviticus chapters 11 to 15, um, we start to unpack laws related to cleanliness and uncleanliness. And so you're going to see laws about what animals you're allowed to eat or not to eat. You're going to see laws related to birth and things related to the reproductive system, okay? And so, in other words, anything that involves that part of the body and that system, you're going to see rules about that. And we'll, we'll use code for your children's sake. Um, there's laws about contagious diseases, like COVID. No, there's laws about contagious diseases, and I say that broadly because we see that there are contagious diseases that spread on people, like leprosy, and then there's contagious diseases that spread on homes, like mold, and there's rules about what you do with these creeping, um, expanding contagious diseases. That's Leviticus 11 to 15. I know you guys can't wait. In Leviticus 17 to 27, we see most laws related to how to function as a nation, as well as the national calendar of rituals and festivals. And so that's, and then Leviticus 16 in the center of the book is, a, is something entirely different with the Day of Atonement. But the rest of the, of the chapters are really about these different laws. And so today what I want to do is give you an overview of the meaning of these laws so that when we get to individual chapters, you kind of have canisters to put everything into so you know what God is saying and what God is doing. And you can say, well, what are these laws all about? Okay. So I want to stress that I'm giving a very simplistic understanding of these things and that you, if you read you know, 10 different commentaries, you're probably going to get five different views on these laws and how you interpret them and what they mean for believers. And there's entire denominational splits over how we should interpret these laws, okay? And so I, I'm not presenting the only view. I am presenting one view. It's probably the most common, and it's also probably the most simplified way of viewing it. That doesn't make it wrong. It makes it broad, okay? It makes it broad in general. So generally speaking, we see three types of laws in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. We see civil laws, we see religious or ritual laws, and we see moral or ethical laws. And so we can very broadly break down the law into those three canisters. Civil, in other words, how you run your nation, right? Religious, how you worship, and then ethical or moral, in other words, how you should behave. And so it's as if God is saying, you are my people. I bought you with blood out of the land of Egypt. This is how my people operate. This is how they worship. This is how they function in society. And this is how my people behave. You don't become God's people by doing those things, right? You, the idea in the Jewish mindset is you are God's people, and this is how my people function, okay? So let's look at these one at a time. We're going to spend the most time on the ritual or religious laws because that's probably the hardest for us to understand. First is civil laws. Civil laws are easy, okay? The purpose of civil laws are about how you run a city or a country. 
It's very obvious, okay? These are laws about government structures, laws about armies, laws about taxes, laws about buying and selling land, and all of those things, okay? You need to remember that God is forming a new nation, and he says, I am your king, you are my subjects. Just like in another kingdom, right, in an old monarchy, the king, the land belongs to the king, right? The land belongs to the king, and so you don't permanently own it. He's like, you're kind of managing your little plot of land, but it ultimately belongs to God, right, as the king. It's God's promised land. And so God has rules for what will happen with his land. You can farm it for so many years, then you need to let it rest. One of the causes of the exile when the Jews are removed from the promised land is they didn't allow Sabbath years to allow the land to rest. And so God says, I'm hitting reset, and I'm going to force the land to rest until all of those accumulated Sabbath years are played out. And so there's all of these civil laws about how the nation of Israel should function. And so God has laws that would, for all intents and purposes, be kind of like their constitution. Now, as I explain this, that's the purpose. And so what I want to I kind of extend to you guys is that there's an idea of this is what these laws meant for the original audience. If you were a Jew and you're hearing the law read to you back in the day, you know, and you're next to all your pals um, in, in the wilderness right before you go into the promised land and you're hearing these laws read, this is how you're interpreting it. Okay, you're a Jew and you're saying, well, yeah, when we go into the promised land, that's what I got to do. That's the perspective. Now, the big question is not so much what it meant for them. The big question is what? What does it mean for me? Like, should we be a theocratic state and should the United States all repent and follow God? And then if that happens, we return to a civil structure like we see in the Old Testament. Is that what we should do? Simply stated, no. So for us, because we don't live in ancient Israel, we don't follow God's civil laws. It's that simple. We don't live in ancient Israel, and so we don't follow the civil law. We follow the law of the United States of America as long as the law doesn't violate God's law, right? And so when we say that, we mean like if they say you should kill people. Well, we're not going to do that because that violates God's ethical law as well as his civil law. But we, don't, we have no obligation to obey the civil laws written in the book of Leviticus. All right, so civil laws, they're about how Israel should function. It doesn't apply to us because we don't live in ancient Israel. Ritual or religious laws, they have the most implication. So the purpose of the ritual laws, now those first five chapters were religious ritual laws that we looked at. The purpose of ritual or religious laws are about how people would worship God, and they're about how people stay focused on God and how pe God's people remember important truths about God. That's the whole point of relig religious and ritual laws. And so when we get into things like food you should eat, clothing you should wear, bodily discharges, those are all ritual laws. They're supposed to help us somehow, for some reason, stay focused on God and remember important truths about God. And so remember that God wanted his people to be set apart. He says, you are different. You are different. Act differently. See, let me just pause there and say this is one of the great paradoxes of the entire Bible, which we always get wrong. 
okay? Because we are by nature people who like to create laws and rules, and we think those rules help us accomplish something. You know, so the, 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 the misnomer would be for us to say, if I follow these laws, then I'm God's person. But it's, no, you are God's people. This is why you behave that way. We see this same positional and then reaction in the New Testament. Paul says, you're dead to sin. So what do you do? Consider yourself dead. All right, you no longer have a heart of stone. Now you have a heart of the spirit. And so act like it. You have, you've been adopted. Okay, well now in response to that reality, to that positional truth, that changes the way that you behave. You don't behave differently in order to get the positional truth. The positional truth is your reality, and then the positional truth shapes the way that you act. Are you following me? It's supposed to be the same way with the Jewish law, okay? But we don't think that way because we think like a ladder. So since the people were set apart and holy from the nations, God gives them ritual and purity laws to remind them that they are different. So they're not allowed to eat the same food the other nations ate. Why? Because they're different. They're not allowed to wear clothes that the other nations wear. Why? Because they're different. They're not allowed to get tattoos and, you know, get like a woad on the side of your face because you came of age. Why? Because they're not like the other nations. They get circumcised, whereas other nations don't. Why? Because they're not like other nations. They're cut apart, no pun intended, all right? You can't do the similar haircuts, right? It's different. And so uh, as we go through these ritual laws, we're going to slow down, and we're going to explain them a little bit um, more directly and specifically. But broadly, this is what I would say. If you think, for example, about food laws, and again, you're going to have different scholars who are going to think different things. But food laws, if you look at the, the foods that are forbidden, like let's use pigs as an example, they even look like a combination of other animals. It's like pigs have the skin of humans. That's why they test weapons on pigs, right? But then they have like the like feet that are similar to an animal that chews the cud. And so everything, it looks like a mix. It's like you're mixing different animals or they eat unclean things. And so the, the clothing, well, why can I not mix different types of fabric? Because God reminded them from the beginning, you are set apart. You also don't mix with what? The nations you're going into. And so there were these tangible reminders built into the law that God's people are not like other nations. They don't act like other nations. They don't mix with other nations. They don't intermarry other nations. They act like God's people. They live like God's people. And so there's this very broad idea of everything God commands them, whether it's food or whether it's clothing, it's about reminding them that they are separate. They're separate. They're separate. They're separate. You don't go down that road. You don't get yoked with things that are not part of who you are as God's people. Um, also included in the ritual laws are sacrifices and offerings. They're designed to keep God's people ritually clean so that they can worship him, so that God can stay in their presence, so he doesn't need to kick them out or leave like we see in Ezekiel chapter 12 when the glory departs the temple. Okay? 
And so that branch of, of ritual laws, they help to ensure that a holy God can remain among an unclean people. And so I think I said early on, it's like you have this constant ebb and flow of being unclean and therefore unable to approach God. And those things aren't necessarily bad. You know, it's not sin for a woman to be in her menstrual cycle, but it does make someone unclean in the book of Leviticus. And then there's ways to become clean. Okay, those, so there, it doesn't mean it's just sin because you're unclean. It's not always sin. It's natural parts of reproduction and life. And then the third area of religious law is the rituals that are about feasts and festivals and the, and the calendar. And this branch of, of ritual is all about helping people to remember key truths about God, key truths about the work of redemption, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And so this is the key way that the truth of God is passed from one generation to the next through festival, okay, through holidays. We do the same thing, okay? So what? that's for them. So if you're a Jew, you're realizing this is what this means to me. I am unlike the other nations. I'm set apart for God. And so all of these things are about reminding me of that fact and preventing me from becoming unclean so that I actually can maintain a healthy relationship with my king. What does it mean for us? All right, let's first talk about the idea of being set apart, set apart, holy. In the New Testament, we are in what's called a different covenant. And a covenant, in the simplest way we can say it, is basically the term that the Bible uses to define God's relationship with his people. It involves things like promises and conditions that God holds on his own shoulders. But we are what's called the new covenant, that we are a new people, that we come from the, the blood of Christ, we've been reborn spiritually into a new nation, but this nation is spiritual. And so when we are born again into this new family, this new covenant, this new nation of, that's comprised of people from all nations, we are made positionally into a holy people and that we're set apart for God's purpose. Now, the foods that we eat or the clothes that we wear do not make us into a holy people because in the blood of Christ, we are a holy people. And so we may choose to do or not to do certain things because we identify with God. In other words, an ex a follower of Christ will hopefully choose to dress modestly or ordaining or, or, or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Thank you. Adorning herself with good works rather than inappropriate clothes. But that doesn't make you holy. What makes you holy is the fact that the blood of Christ has washed you clean and set you apart. And so we don't do these things to maintain our holiness. In Christ, we are positionally holy. What that means is that in Christ, we have liberty now because we're a nation of nations with different cultures. We have liberty to wear our hair however we want. We have liberty to grow a beard or not grow a beard. We even have liberty to eat whatever food we want, as we're going to look at next week. What shows God's people, us, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, what shows us as being set apart is not the clothes we wear or our haircut. What shows biblically, I'm not saying in reality, but biblically what should show us as primarily set apart is our love. For God and our love for one another, which is why Jesus prays in John 17 that they will know you by your love, 
Okay, this is we don't get circumcised. We don't have to get circumcised anymore because we're circumcised of the heart. And now the greatest thing that we have to show us as a set apart people is our love, our love for God and our love for people. So do we have to obey all of those old rules? No, because there is a new rule, a new law, a law of love. And this goes into purity. See, in Jesus, we are made pure. We've been talking a lot about this that we have a polluted space of our soul and that the blood of Christ, instead of the blood of an animal, cleanses that sacred space so now it can be filled with the presence of God. The presence of God was in the Holy of Holies. It departed in Ezekiel. It never came back, even with the rebuilt temple. And then God cleanses us. Paul says, you are the temple of God. At Pentecost, the Spirit of God came and dwelt within God's people instead of dwelling within a building, okay? And so maybe some of you have heard me joke before that we say, well, you should dress up, you're going to church. Well, technically, you should sleep in a tux because you are the temple of God, okay? And so there's this idea that we are the new sacred space, and it's a corporate concept. It's not just an individual concept. But that's why at Pentecost, the, when the Holy Spirit came upon people, it appeared as tongues of fire. If you remember, if you've ever read the Old Testament, when God was leading the people through the wilderness, he led them as a pillar of fire. And so this is a marker from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant that God's Spirit is dwelling within his people. And so now our space is pure. And this is what it says in 1 John 1, 7 to 2, 2. He says, look, if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus has cleanses us from all our sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. The Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation or the satisfaction of wrath for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. The idea is that we are pure. We've been made pure. And now the author of Hebrews says that when we sin, we confess. Not so we can be made pure, but so that our conscience can be cleansed. So that we can maintain and cooperate with the Spirit and have a healthy relationship with a God that we are already engaged to, so to speak. The third thing is festivals. So God has given the people of Jesus two main ordinances, and these are our versions of festivals. We don't have to, listen, I just want to say this. I hope I don't offend anybody too much. There's a movement going around about how you as new covenant believers need to follow the Jewish feasts and festivals. It was super popular on the internet during COVID because nobody had anything to do with their time, okay? And I was having people text me and ask me questions, and they're trying to, like, like re Listen, do not return to the law. The law only brought death. You are new covenant people. God has redeemed us from all of that oppressive law that you couldn't fulfill, and now he gives his people two commands, and those commands are to celebrate the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and the ordinance of baptism which commemorate his death, burial, and resurrection, and our new birth into a family. 
okay? And so this is what we celebrate. God gives us these things. Why? Well, the same spiritual intent of the festival He gives us these things that we would focus on the truth of God, that we would recall the truth of God, and that we would stay um, reminded constantly of his redeeming work. And so it's not wrong to celebrate Christmas and Easter or whatever personal festivals and, and holidays your family does as long as you keep them focused. But the New Testament family of God, the New Covenant, the church, the assembly, his gathered ones, What we do is we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we celebrate baptism, and then generally speaking, when we gather together, we sing the word, pray the word, and preach the word, and obey the word. But the ins and outs of what that looks like will vary from culture to culture. Do you follow me on all that? I'm glad my wife did. And then the, the third and final thing here are the moral and ethical laws. And so the point is this. Civil laws, you don't obey because you don't live in ancient Israel, okay? Purity laws, they continue with the same spiritual intent, but they're fulfilled in Jesus, okay? And then the third thing is moral laws. The purpose of moral or ethical laws, ethics are all about how we act And so ethical laws are about how we should treat people. And so in the Old Testament, there's laws about lying, stealing, murdering, adultery. And you might think these fall under civil laws because there are civil consequences. But remember that civil laws are more about government regulations. These are about moral and ethical obligations. And so the moral law or the ethical law, these are the laws most people know because they're basically the Ten Commandments. You know, worship God, obey your parents, obey your parents, obey your parents. (laughs) Don't murder, don't steal, you know, those sorts of things. Now, the moral law, the spiritual intent of the moral law continues in perpetuity. And what I mean by that is this. Jesus redefined, not by eliminating, but by simplifying the moral code. And this is what he says He simplifies the moral code by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is all the law and the prophets, okay? And so the the New Testament authors describe this new law as the law of Christ or the law of love. And the law of love defines how we treat one another. And so in other words, I don't need a law that says, hey, Bill, don't steal your neighbor's bicycle, because it wouldn't be loving to steal my neighbor's bicycle, all right? I don't need someone to say to me, you shouldn't steal your neighbor's kids, and I would say, my kids don't obey me. Why would my neighbor's kids obey me? <laughs> Let them have their own kids. Now, the idea is it's not loving to kidnap people, okay? It's not loving to commit adultery. It's not loving to lie to your neighbor. And so the law of Christ governs our moral and ethical standards, which in a lot of ways, in innumerable ways, is far more, can I say, restrictive than than the Ten Commandments. The point is this. Jesus fulfilled the law. That's what he says in Matthew 5. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. In Romans 10.4, we see this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
Romans 8 says that God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin so that he could essentially condemn sin, fulfill the law, so that then you would not be condemned because now you have the law of the spirit which gives way to peace and life. And so we have the Old Testament law is fulfilled in Jesus. And what does that look like in summary? Well, I found this... um, this, this little list from Pastor John Piper, which I just thought was a remarkable summary. He says, in Hebrews 9, 12, it says, He entered once for all, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What that means is that the blood sacrifices commanded in the Old Testament ceased, because Christ fulfilled all they were pointing towards, which indeed was himself. He was the final, unrepeatable sacrifice for sin, which is why the Eucharist, as seen in the Catholic Church, is not biblically accurate, because Jesus was sacrificed once. All right, Hebrews 7, 23 to 24, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. In other words, they died. Somebody had to take their place. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So the priesthood, the priesthood that stood between the worshiper and God has ceased because now Jesus is the only priest we need because he's alive forever. He was the first resurrection. John 4, 21 and 23 says, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. Realize in Deuteronomy 12, 5, they were commanded to worship in Jerusalem. He said, that's not going to be around anymore, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And then he says in Matthew or in John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And Jesus was referring, speaking about the temple of his body. And in Matthew 18, Jesus said, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. The point is this, the physical temple has ceased to be the geographic center of worship. Now Christ himself is the center of worship. He is the place, the tent, the temple where we meet God. Therefore, Christianity has no geographic center. It has no Mecca. It has no Jerusalem. It has no sacred building anymore. In Mark 7, Jesus said to them, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Thus he declared all foods clean. The food laws in Christ are that, that originally were designed to set Israel apart have now been fulfilled and ended in Christ. Romans 13, 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And John 18 says, My kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is not of this world. And if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. And so the establishment of civil laws on the basis of ethnically rooted people who are ruled directly by God has ceased. In other words, the theocratic state is gone. The people of God are no longer a unified political body or ethnic group or nation state, but now the New Testament says we are exiles, pilgrims on search for the city of God, sojourners, while we wait to finally be gathered together. That's pictured in the book of Revelation chapter 7. And so the point is that all of these laws were signposts, and who were they pointing towards? Jesus. 
And so when someone says to you, well, look at all these stupid rules. That's why Christianity is a joke. And you can say, those rules are very peculiar. Do you know why they're there? Because they all pointed to Jesus. And thankfully, Jesus fulfilled the law. And in Jesus, it's the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul says, and now a way has been made manifest for you to be righteous apart from the law. Because the law only would lead you to sin and death. Why? Because you are weak in sin and in the flesh. And so as we go through Leviticus, my intention is to unpack the law and then pull us to the New Testament to show you how Jesus fulfilled it and how his fulfillment makes it even more glorious. Right? See, we might be tempted like the disciples to say in Matthew 24, oh, look at these stones, Jesus. You know, oh, look at these cathedrals. Aren't they amazing? Oh, look at this temple. Oh, isn't it amazing? But we need to remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, now if the ministry of death, which he's referring to the law, because that all could do is kill you. If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the people could not gaze at Moses' face because it was shining with glory, and that's been brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, how much more will the ministry of righteousness exceed it? And so there's even more glory in Christ's fulfillment. So we forget what lies beyond, behind And we look forward to what lies ahead. Christ has fulfilled these things. They are signposts pointing to him. And hopefully we'll get a deeper appreciation of their meaning as we unpack them. But the point is this, guys. Jesus is good news. You don't have to fulfill those laws. Christ fulfilled them for you. Let's pray. Father God, I I pray, Lord, that even these sections of Scripture, which may seem dry to us, would come to life. And that we would realize that Jesus is better. He's better. He's good. He's glorious. He's spectacular. I thank you that we don't have to fulfill these laws because Jesus fulfilled them for us. Indeed, God, for the vast, vast majority of us, these laws wouldn't even be an option because we are Gentiles. Lord, but because of your goodness, you have grafted us in. And we thank you, Lord, for this creation of this this new body, the church, the called out ones, the assembly, your new covenant people, people born of the spirit. God, I pray that we would realize how good we have it in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen.